Maybe at some point in your Christian life, you've heard a call, a charge that has gone something like this. The phone is ringing. God is calling. What are you going to do? Are you going to pick up the call? Are you just going to let the phone ring? Are you too busy with other things? You do not know how many more opportunities you will have to pick up the call. Perhaps some of you at some point in your Christian life have heard a charge that went something like that. Hopefully it came within the context of the gospel being presented, the the testimony of what Christ has done for sinners like us, and so on. And when you hear a charge like that, it does get to the sense of mankind's culpability. That God is calling in the gospel, will you, as it were, pick up the phone? It, It gets to a sense of urgency, or it can. You don't know how many times more you will have the opportunity to pick up the phone. But if you just were to take that metaphor and that charge on its own, it can be misleading. Because although the call of the gospel goes out, and that's what we will consider tonight as the external call, that's when the phone is ringing, if you will, and the gospel is being proclaimed. But that's not the totality of the story. As we'll see in the scriptures, the Bible speaks of what we've referred to, this theological term, as the internal call. And when that call comes, everyone to whom that call comes, that internal call, everyone to whom it comes picks up the phone. 100% of the time. And that gives you an idea of what we're talking about tonight in the doctrine of irresistible grace. Irresistible grace answers the question, why do some people, again, to use that metaphor, to use that illustration, why do some people pick up the phone, as it were, when God is calling in the gospel and others do not? Irresistible grace helps answer that question as to why some do and as to why others do not. First, let's begin with a definition. Uh, Irresistible grace is, as you are already uh, familiar with, it's the I in the acronym TULIP. We've covered the doctrine of total depravity. We've covered the doctrine of unconditional election. We've covered the doctrine of limited atonement. We come to the I in the acronym TULIP, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace can be defined as follows. Irresistible grace is God's special saving grace that assuredly affects the salvation of God's elect at God's appointed time. Now let me say this on the outset. This identification, irresistible grace, does not mean that God's grace can never be resisted in some way, shape, or form. That's not what it means. Again, back to the definition. The definition is that God's special saving grace that assuredly affects the salvation of God's elect at God's appointed time, that grace is irresistible. So God's common grace can be spurned. God's common grace, Him making His reign to fall on the just and the unjust, that could be spurned. That can be not appreciated. People can attribute it to Mother Nature. People can rail against the weather and so on. So that grace can be spurned. To use language from Acts 14, 17, the God who provides rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling people's hearts with food and gladness. That could be spurned. Or people can praise agricultural excellence. People can praise hard work or attribute that kind of providential blessing to luck. Or when the gospel goes out. When the gospel goes out and people hear the inspired word of Scripture being quoted, 
People can resist and reject the grace of God as presented in the Gospel and sadly store up for themselves wrath for the day of wrath. But what we're talking about when we talk about the doctrine of irresistible grace is that we're saying that yes, God's grace can be resisted, rejected, and spurned, but when God's special saving grace is directed towards an individual, they will be saved. God does not try to save someone and fail. He's batting a thousand. Everyone that he tries to save will be saved. It's wrong to even use the word try. Some of you, perhaps, when you were younger, you might remember the words that Yoda told to Luke Skywalker when he was training him. Like Luke said something along the lines, like he would give it a try, and then Yoda told him, do or do not, there is no try. Well, for us as human beings, there's a lot of tries. Because we are not omnipotent, we do not have infinite wisdom, so for us there's a lot of tries, but for the omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe, there's no such thing as trying. When God saves somebody, He saves somebody. There's no such thing as Him trying to save somebody. He doesn't try things, He saves. He doesn't try to save. Ty Cobb, uh, some of you might be familiar with him, uh, former baseball player from years back. He uh, played, I think, spent most of his career with the Tigers. He has the all-time leading batting average in professional baseball, 366. So in other words, every 1,000 times he got up to bat, 366 of those times he would get a base hit. God is batting 1,000. For every 1,000 people that he attempts to save, if you will, he assuredly saves them. Now, even if you were to use the example of Ty Cobb and you said, okay, what happens if Ty Cobb was batting 1,000? For every 1,000 times Ty Cobb got up to bat, imagine if he got a hit every single time. Nonetheless, there would still exist the possibility that he could strike out or that he could hit a ground ball and ground out or fly out or so on. But I want you to have this in your mind. We're talking about the doctrine of irresistible grace. We're saying that every single time that God pleases to reveal His Son in a sinner, to bring them out of spiritual death to spiritual life, it assuredly happens. Now, if you understand that, you could understand why the doctrine of irresistible grace is sometimes referred to as efficacious grace or efficacious calling, or maybe effectual grace or effectual calling. When you hear those words efficacious, when you hear that word effectual, they are essentially functioning as synonyms. They both mean to be successful. They both are referring to that which is effective, that which brings about a desired result. So if we were to refer to this doctrine as efficacious grace, we're saying that when God purposes to save a sinner at a certain point point in time, that grace is effective it brings about the desired result. That grace is efficacious. Again, same idea. It brings about the desired result of salvation. So irresistible grace can be referred to as effectual calling or efficacious grace. And I want to give you right at the onset what I think is one of the best examples of this. I think one of the best examples of the doctrine of irresistible grace and what we do mean And what we don't mean by the doctrine of irresistible grace or efficacious calling can be found in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Remember, before Saul of Tarsus was converted, 
he was there holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. So doubtless, unless he just happened to walk up at that certain point in time and just hold their coats, doubtless he was there as Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and was proclaiming biblical history, quoting Old Testament texts, and pointing to Jesus as the just one. Acts chapter 7 verse 52. Saul of Tarsus is there for all of that. And yet Stephen would say in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So how did Saul of Tarsus and how did those others who were there who were going to stone Stephen, how did they resist the Holy Spirit? Well, in the context, they're hearing Spirit-inspired Scripture being quoted. In the context, they're hearing Stephen, who is full of the Holy Spirit, speaking words that would end up in inspired Scripture. So they're resisting the Holy Spirit in that way. It wasn't as though God was trying to save them. He was sending His effectual grace, but they were resisting. No, they were resisting the Holy Spirit, even as they resisted the messenger of the Holy Spirit, speaking words as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, quoting text that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so on. But remember what happened to Saul of Tarsus. It was when he was on the road to Damascus that he was, if you will, apprehended by the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be a few days after that he would be um, baptized. And Ananias would tell him to arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And you'll recall that when Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, spoke of his conversion in Galatians chapter 1, he did not say, when I finally chose Christ. He did not say, and when I stopped resisting the truth. Rather, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, and I'm going to go into the beginning of verse 16, he says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me. What happens is that in Acts chapter 7, it wasn't the appointed time that God had to reveal His Son in Saul of Tarsus. So He resisted. But when that time came, when it pleased God, nothing could stop the Almighty King of the universe from revealing His Son in Saul of Tarsus. But when it pleased God, God had separated him from his mother's womb. He called him through his grace. And then at the appointed time, he revealed his son to and in Saul of Tarsus. It was effectual and it could not be resisted. As an aside, I think this helps explain how Acts chapter 7 verse 51 does not provide a legitimate objection to the doctrine of irresistible grace. It actually provides a great platform to say what we're not talking about when we talk about irresistible grace. What we're talking about when we're talking about irresistible grace is Galatians 1.15. But when God pleased, was pleased to reveal His Son in me. Because you could resist every other moment that the gospel comes. But when that moment comes, you will not resist. Well, that brings us to what I think is uh, important for us to understand. How the doctrine of irresistible grace can be falsely characterized or misunderstood. Um, The first point I want to make here is that uh, some people say that God saves people against their will. 
And that can be very uh, misrepresenting of what we're trying to say here. Now, we know that in our natural state, we're at enmity with God. We're not subject to the, thing, the law of God. Neither indeed can we be. And so on. The list of total depravity verses could go on. But sometimes when people say something like this, they try to make it out as though that when a person comes to Christ, they're taken against their will. They're like a captive going away to a captor when they desire to be free. That's not at all what happens. Rather, as we see in the Scriptures, God saves people through their wills. What does He do? He replaces the heart of stone. And He gives a heart of flesh. And with that new heart, the truth that that individual once spurned, they receive. That truth that they once rejected by the grace of God now with a new heart, they embrace They do not come against their will. You did not come to Christ against your will. Rather, by the grace of God, you are made willing. So I think that's first. Important to understand here. Um, We are made willing by the grace of God. And second, as I've already noted, um, when we're talking about irresistible grace, we do not mean that God's grace cannot be resisted in any way, shape, or form at any time. We're talking about God's effectual saving grace at His appointed time to bring a person from death to life. That is effectual. It's effective. It brings about the desired result of regeneration. Also, uh, some would try to say that responding to God's effectual call, and I'll explain more what we mean by the effectual call. When I say effectual call, we're talking about that effective call. Not merely the external call when the gospel is preached externally and you hear it with your ears, but that effectual call when the Holy Spirit so works on a person's heart, granting them saving faith, bringing about regeneration, and so on. That's what we mean by the effectual call. Now, some people would say, well, responding to God's effectual call is actually dependent upon man's free will. Now, we've spent a lot of time speaking about this, but I will speak about it briefly again here because it's important for us to understand. An Arminian um, would claim that Grace is necessary for a person to believe, but they define that grace as prevenient grace. The word prevenient speaks of something that goes before, something that precedes. So they would say, well, this prevenient grace, this grace that comes before, this grace that precedes, provides a person with an opportunity to respond to the gospel, and ultimately, at the end of the day, they are the final factor in whether or not they are saved. Going back to the opening illustration, why do some people pick up the phone and others do not? They would say because some people decide not to and some do decide to pick up the phone. Whereas we would say the scriptures clearly say that the effectual call of God's grace is the difference maker. God brings a person from death to life and so on. Uh, The definitive factor in a person's salvation is not a person's will. Now, you could listen to the first message on total depravity and the second message on unconditional election to see that. But first, let me just remind you that when the Scripture talks about uh, verses that deal with the subject of election, it definitively teaches that being born again and election is not according to man's will. Just go to John chapter 1, verse 13. That those who received Christ, John chapter 1, verse 12, were born not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. Romans 9.16, that those who God elects, those that He purposes to show mercy to, receive mercy 
not according to their willing or running some kind of human exertion, but according to God who shows mercy. And the examples could go on. James chapter 1, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. I think it's wrong to think that, um, as one writer put it, God gives man salvation in exchange for his faith. Rather, I would argue, God gives man faith to affect his justification. God doesn't just offer an opportunity to be saved. He actually saves. He doesn't merely provide assistance. He secures salvation. So let me help you understand this a little bit more by the metaphors that the Bible uses. When you see the metaphors that the Bible uses, you can see that the definitive factor in a person going from death to life is not their own will. It's the sovereign grace of Almighty God. I will set before you three metaphors, and then we're going to look at some verses that teach about the effectual calling that we've already spoken about. You'll notice in these three metaphors, they all provide a picture to one degree or another of how regeneration happens. And you'll notice that in all three of these illustrations that the Bible uses in multiple places, that the human being is passive in the sovereign work of regeneration. First, picture that the Bible uses, one metaphor, bringing a dead man or woman to life. I'll read to you some verses and make some points along the way. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. We're going to speak more about this verse a little bit later, but for the purposes of right now, I want you to notice that God takes out a heart of stone. If you have a heart of stone, you're not in a good place. You're dead. You're like the dry bones of Ezekiel 37. You need spiritual life. John chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Notice the word as. See the comparative statement that Jesus is making here. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, This isn't just a doctrines of grace proponent using the death metaphor beyond what the scripture teaches. This is Jesus using that metaphor and saying, I'm giving you a little bit of an idea of how spiritual life comes to a sinner. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus is using that metaphor right there of resurrection as a picture that well describes what he's doing when he grants. If you look in the context, you'll see that um, eternal life and spiritual life is immediately in view in verses 24 and 25. And then you could even talk about the metaphor beyond that as well. Colossians 2.13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Then there's Ephesians 2, verses 1, verses 4 and 5. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Go ahead to verses 4 and 5. But God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Now, why did I read all those verses to you? Because sometimes there will be opponents of the doctrines of grace who will just look at, say, Ephesians chapter 2 and say, you know, those proponents of the doctrines of grace, they just take this metaphor of death and they're packing so much into it. And what I want you to see is that God is the one who's using this metaphor repeatedly in the scriptures. It's as though he wants us to get in our minds what happened to us when we were brought to life. The metaphor is there. As a matter of fact, when you look in Ephesians 2, that picture of being brought from death to life is a very fitting illustration, a very fitting metaphor, because we are told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that salvation is not of ourselves. We're told that salvation is done in such a way that no one can boast, verse 9. And so resurrection is a very fitting metaphor for what happens to us spiritually. It's actually a reality. We were dead spiritually and we're brought to life. And you're probably waiting for it. And here it comes because I do think it's a fitting illustration. Lazarus. Lazarus from John chapter 11. Lazarus was brought to life by the power of God and the word of Christ. I want you to note, Lazarus did not cooperate with Christ to be resurrected. He did not give Jesus permission. He just heard the words, Lazarus come forth. All of a sudden, he went from death to life. He didn't cooperate. He didn't give permission. He was just resurrected. I can assure you, if you asked Lazarus, Lazarus, did you give Jesus permission to resurrect you? I can assure you, he would say no. He was just brought out of death to life. Amazing picture of spiritual resurrection that happens to us. Next picture, and this one can be easily overlooked, is uh, staying in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are created in Christ Jesus. I'll just read one verse from here, but there are other ones in your notes. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This point is made in more ways than one in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We're told, for we are His workmanship. Workmanship. This is a Greek word, poema, which speaks of a thing being made. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this kind of language, you're familiar with it. We use it in Christian circles. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Circumcision doesn't profit anything. But what does profit? A new creation. You can see language like that in Galatians 6.15, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You can look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. And I think, again, it's a fitting illustration of how we come to spiritual life. We are created. Nothing that has ever been created has given permission to be created. It is just created. Nothing refused to be created. Nothing gave permission to be created. And again, this speaks to our passivity. That we are graciously acted upon and brought to life by the efficacious, effectual, effective, successful grace of God. One more metaphor that shows, again, it's the sovereign grace of God and His will that is the factor in a person coming to spiritual life and not the dead persons or the thing that's being created. There's the example, the metaphor of birth. Remember again, John chapter 1, verse 12, those who received Christ are those, according to verse 13, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
This metaphor of birth is seen in a, quite a few places in the New Testament as well. Right? Jesus answered, John chapter 3, verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Note the language that God causes us to be born again. He's the one who begets and brings about new life in us. How does He do it? You find that out a little bit later on in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. So we're born again via the Spirit. John chapter 3, we're born again via the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. The metaphor can be found in other places still. James chapter 1, verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Reading from the ESV, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, note the tense, has been born of God. Everyone who believes presently has been born of God. And the metaphor is used in other places. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Literally, that word that's used there in the Greek is rebirth. Palingonesias. By the washing of regeneration, rebirth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Why do I go through those metaphors with you? Because I want you to see in the first metaphor and the second and now in the third metaphor, we have highlighted for us that God is the one who sovereignly brings about regeneration and salvation. You did not contribute to your natural birth. You did not contribute to your spiritual birth. The wind, as it were, blew where it wished and the Holy Spirit in God's appointed time gave you new birth through the Word of God. So in those metaphors, we can see that we are passive. Don't get me wrong, you start to cooperate the minute you come out of death to life, right? Lazarus cooperated with Christ as he came out of the tomb, but Lazarus's cooperation did not lead to him coming to life. Now let's look at some verses, some biblical support for the doctrine of irresistible grace um, and efficacious grace. We'll start with some texts in the Old Testament. Uh, beginning at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So how does, as one of the questions in your quiz notes, how does Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, witness to irresistible grace, effectual calling? Well, it speaks to the work of God's grace that He provides a spiritual circumcision of the heart that leads to a person loving Him. What precedes the work of loving God, the action of loving God? It's the work of the circumcision of the heart. God said through Moses, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Moving ahead, to love the Lord your God. It implicitly witnesses to how the grace of God precedes 
our loving Him. How the grace of God is what removes our spiritual insensitivity and our rebellion. You have it right there in that picture of the circumcision of the heart. To use language from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it's a circumcision that is done in the Spirit. It's a circumcision to use language from Colossians 2 in New Covenant language. It's the circumcision of Christ made without hands. It's a sovereign working of God to beget affections that would not be there apart from the sovereign working of God. Then there's Ezekiel uh, 36, verses 26 and 27. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. I want you to know, if you were to look before this and if you were to look after this, you will see not only in these verses, but in the verses that surround these verses, such emphasis upon God's activity, what God will do. You'll see that in verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the emphasis is on what God does, and it is effectual. It is efficacious. It is effective. Watch what God says will happen as a result. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So we're seeing here the effectual work of God's grace and what he does and the results that it brings. Well, now let's look briefly at some Uh, New Testament verses. Some New Testament verses. We'll start with Matthew 22, verse 14. This comes at the end of a parable that Jesus had given, and we are familiar with the statement, but I'll read it again for us. For many are called, but few are chosen. And what we're going to see in the rest of the examples of New Testament texts is that the word called or calling is not going to be used in the way that it is here. The way that the word called is used here in Matthew 22, verse 14, is is with regards to the external call, the outward call of the gospel. Many are invited to the banquet. Many are externally called. So this is talking about the external call. As we go on, we're going to see the sovereign, effectual, internal call. That call that's analogous to Lazarus coming coming to physical life out of physical death which is analogous for us spiritually. But here we're told, for many are called, but few are chosen. And the thing I want to call your attention to right here is that from an Arminian paradigm, you would expect language a little bit different than this. You would expect something along the lines of, many are called, but few receive. Or you would expect something like this, many are called, but few cooperate with the grace of God. That's not what we see here. We see in Matthew 22, verse 14, many are called, but few are eclectos. Few are chosen, elect. Now we're going to go through some verses and we're going to see what this irresistible grace looks like. One of the best verses that you could go to, I think, to see this is John chapter 6, verse 37. In John chapter 6, verse 37, we see multiple doctrines of grace in one verse taught. This is amazing. You want to have this one in your mind. Jesus speaking in John 6. We've been there already in our studies in John chapter 6, but we go here for irresistible grace. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. 
Can you see the different doctrines of grace that are right here in this one verse? You have election. All that the Father gives. So there you have election. You have the perseverance of the saints, or if you will, as we'll see in two weeks, the preservation of the saints, because Jesus says that those come to him will not be cast out. They make it across the finish line. So you have unconditional election, the doctrine of election here, and you have the perseverance of the saints, but you also have irresistible grace. All that the Father gives to me, purposed before the foundation of the world, this is what happens then in time. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Not they might come, not they may come, not they could come. Assuredly, they will come. They will come. Would they come on their own? No, they would not come on their own. How do you know that? You go to John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me. Right? Go back to our message on total depravity. Nobody can come to me. Well, how do they end up coming? Look at John chapter 6, verses 64 and 65. They cannot come unless it is granted, gifted to them by the Father. So we see irresistible grace in John chapter 6, verse 37. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. We're told there, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now what I want you to note here is that she was a worshipper of God. What does that mean? She was a proselyte. She was somebody who had been won over to Judaism, or more specifically, to the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. She, 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 she came to that understanding. But notice, this is somebody who was a worshiper of God, but what did she still need if she was going to heed the things spoken of by Paul? She needed the Lord to open her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. And this is somebody who would be like the, you know, the top line of expectation, humanly speaking, and she couldn't get across the finish line of salvation on her own or enter into salvation on her own. She needed the Lord to open her heart. What's the implication of that, by the way? Just think through it, right? The implication of that is, if the Lord didn't open her heart, what would have happened? She wouldn't have heeded the things spoken by Paul. So you just have to think through it, right? Because somebody would say, like, okay, maybe she would have heeded it anyway. Really? So the Lord opened her heart because there was no real need in him doing it, but he just wanted to do it anyway, but she would have received him without him opening her heart. No. The Lord did it because she needed it, as all of us do, that effectual working of grace so that we might come to him. Now we're going to see the language of called. So here we go. So I've told you about the external call when the gospel goes out. Now we're going to see language about the internal call, that bringing of the person out of darkness into spiritual light, when they hear the call of Christ in the gospel and they come to spiritual life. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. We'll start there. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, you know that this isn't speaking about those who are simply externally called. You know that. You do know that those who were predestined had to, at some point, receive the external call. Apart from, say, elect infants or those without capacity to think, to use those groups who are referenced in the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
But we understand that a person needs to hear the calling of the gospel externally. But you know that's not what's being spoken about here. Because all who are called end up being justified. So this is a different kind of call. This is the effectual call where God calls a person out of spiritual death into spiritual life. And notice here, it's what's often referred to as the golden chain of salvation, that all who are predestined from before the foundation of the world, they are called in time. And as a result, they are justified. And eventually, they are glorified. It's a sure thing. And the language here speaks to how assured it is. Predestined, called, justified, and glorified. It's as though it's a done deal in the mind of Almighty God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, or into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what I want you to note with this verse is that the call connotes power. You were called into fellowship. Into fellowship. The fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, to be a partaker with Him. The faithful God, notice that's the language at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful. The God who purposed before the foundation of the world to save the elect brought it about in time. And He called you into fellowship with His Son. A little bit later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, the Apostle Paul says, But we preach Christ to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So right here you see the external call implied, and then you see the effectual internal call. What do I mean? External call is in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We preach Christ crucified. External call is going out. Generally speaking, this is the response. To Jews, it is a stumbling block. To Greeks, it is foolishness. But it's not to all Jews, and it's not to all Greeks. Well, what's the difference? Why do some Jews end up having a different response, and why do some Greeks have a different response? You're told in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So by the gracious, effectual calling of God, some go from spiritual death to spiritual life, and they see Christ crucified not as a stumbling block, not as foolishness. They see Christ crucified as the wisdom of God and as the power of God because of the effectual calling of God wrought by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I won't go through other verses in 1 Corinthians 1, but if you were to go on to 1 Corinthians 1, you'd see the word calling used again in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. In verses 27 and 28, you'd see God chose, in one way or another, three different times. And that you see that this choosing was done in such a way that no flesh should glory in His presence. And then in verse 30, we're told, and because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him. To use language from Ephesians 2, it's not of yourselves. To use language from Ephesians 2, you cannot boast. You had nothing to do with it. You were brought out of death into life. Uh, A couple more verses. 
A few more. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. There's the doctrine of election. God from the beginning. What beginning is being spoken of here? Probably the beginning that's referred to in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you could speak of eternity in categories of time, it's eternity past. So God shows you for salvation through, this is how He did it, through sanctification, setting apart by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel. So how did somebody hear the internal effectual call? They heard it through the external call. It was through the gospel. And all of a sudden, as the gospel was going out, which according to Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation, they were made alive from the inside by the Holy Spirit. And through the gospel, they came to believe and they went from death to life. And look at the end to which they were called. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be with Him as we will be with Him in glory. Colossians 3.4 To use language from 1 John 3.2 We shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. So you see election. You see calling. You see the means that He uses. The gospel. And you see the ends for which He's called His people. Sharing in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ having a glorified body like Him, enjoying Him forever, and so on. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of God, Paul writes to Timothy, he is the one who, quote, has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, last verse that we'll go through um, tonight. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. This isn't talking about the external call. That wouldn't make sense within the context, contextually or otherwise. Peter, you'll note, is calling attention to two things that believers didn't have anything to do with. He's highlighting God's sovereign grace. Be diligent to make your calling and your election. The word calling and election are being used here in related ways. Emphasizing what God has done. Chose before the foundation of the world and through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God called a person out of death into life in time. So finally, I want to close with just these two points. You can... Add to the doctrine of irresistible grace by saying the following. You could say there's a Trinitarian basis for irresistible grace and effectual calling. And it would go something like this, as it is in your notes. Even as the Father has elected and chosen a particular people to give to His Son, and even as the Son has laid down His life for a particular people, so it is not only biblical, as we've seen, but logical and theologically consistent that the Holy Spirit would bring about regeneration in the lives of those whom the Father elected and those for whom Jesus died. And then furthermore, you just think it through a little bit more, it's not only biblical, but it is also logical and theologically consistent that such saving grace would be irresistible and efficacious. 
Just think of the metaphors that the Bible uses. Can a dead person resist being resurrected? The answer is no. Can a creation resist being created? The answer is no. Can a child resist being conceived? The answer is no. And when God is pleased to reveal His Son in a person, Christ will be revealed and Christ crucified will be esteemed as the wisdom and power of God. That's what we mean by the doctrine of irresistible grace. And that's a Trinitarian theological basis for it. And finally, uh, this uh, doesn't include all the reactions that we can have to the doctrine of irresistible grace uh, and effectual calling, but I just provide two. One, praise and thanksgiving. Uh, I I read these words by Gordon uh, Girard, He was a pastor of a Reformed church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He had written a book uh, on the canons of the Synod of Dort. And as I came across these words, I just loved them. They resonated with my heart, and I think they'll resonate with yours. He said, By His sovereign power, He broke my rebellious will. He called me when I would not be called. He took me when I would not be taken. He saved me when I would not be saved. He made me to believe when I would not believe. He gave me faith when I had no faith and wanted no faith. I praise God that His grace is irresistible. If His grace were anything but irresistible, I would have resisted it. Oh yes, the hour arrived when I came willingly. But this, I must know, was the Spirit of God working in me. Secondly, I'd encourage you by saying the doctrine of irresistible grace, effectual calling, ought to inspire us to share the gospel. How amazing is it to think that you as a creature could be issuing the external call And as you, a creature, are issuing the external call of the gospel, you're saying Christ died for sinners like us and so on. You're saying that he rose from the grave and so on. That God could be using that external call in that moment to be the means by which he brings about new life and has the internal call, that inward call happen when a person is regenerated, granted new birth, made a new creation in Christ, and they come to saving faith. May that get you excited. It may not be happening every time, right? It will not happen every time if you share the gospel enough. God is pleased even when you're sharing and you're sowing seed and it's not his moment to bring about new life. But it gets me excited to think about there may be times when you're sharing the gospel and your external call is going to be the means by which they hear the internal call of the Holy Spirit, bringing them out of death into spiritual life. And then in your notes I have there, Um, I'll probably put this up on the discussion board. How else uh, can the doctrine of irresistible grace and effectual calling encourage you in your Christian life and in your understanding of biblical truth? Thanks be to God for His grace. If it wasn't irresistible, we surely would have resisted it. But it is effectual and it has accomplished that which God set it forth to do. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank you for that calling, Lord, that happened in time. You calling us through the gospel of your Son, through the sanctification of the Spirit, granting the gifts of faith and repentance so that we might believe the truth and by your grace be justified. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for such great grace that saves and assuredly is efficacious and effectual. Father, may you encourage us, Lord, to rejoice in the grace that has saved us and to proclaim the gospel of grace, knowing that you, the God of the universe, have decreed that the external call would be issued to many, 
But even as we issue it to many, we can have that, that hope and humble expectation, even as your son told the Apostle Paul with regards to Corinth, that he had many people in that city. So Father, as we go about your business in this week and so on, may you help us to be diligent to spread the gospel And may you call, according to your will, sinners out of death into spiritual life when you please to reveal your Son in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.